to sleep with Gina Marie. I'm Gina, and Marie, Marie is back from a restful vacation and tells me there's a lot going on with our keywords. Marie has provided another keyword for this episode. Hey, have you noticed how um, uh, uh, each of the keywords have a real connection to the story? Yeah, me, same. But that's it. That's all I know so far, and I'm waiting. So I'll, I'll let you know when I know something. In the meantime, in the meantime, thanks for staying in touch with me. I love all your comments and your likes, and I love those subscriptions. Please keep them coming. I have another chilly classic story for us today. Nope, doesn't take place in the Swiss Alps. Nope, that was last week. Wasn't that a good story? Today, we are in very chilly New York City. Thanks to the uh, intriguing, shall we say, storyteller, Roald Dahl. I think of him as a very tangled individual. We have learned so much about this talented author and this wartime fighter pilot right here on this podcast. Please enjoy the information we have on him um, in several of our episodes of Fast Asleep with Gina Marie. You may want to start with episodes uh, 261 or 243. Today, there's something else intriguing. In this episode, there's this intriguing scheme to make some real money. Published in 1953. Tuck in, everybody. For Roald Dolls, Vengeance is Mine, Incorporated. It was snowing when I woke up. I could tell that it was snowing because there was a kind of brightness in the room. And it was quiet outside with no footstep noises coming up from the street. And no tire noises, but only the engines of the cars. I looked up and I saw George over by the window in his green dressing gown, bending over the paraffin stove making the coffee. Snowing, I said. Oh, it's cold. George answered. It's really cold. I got out of bed and fetched the morning paper from outside the door. Oh, it was cold all right. And I ran back quickly and jumped into bed and lay still for a while under the bedclothes, holding my hands tight between my legs for warmth. Oof. No letters, George said. No, no letters. Mm, doesn't look as if the old man's going to cough up. Well, maybe he thinks 450 is enough for one month, I said. He's never been to New York. He doesn't know the cost of living here. You shouldn't have spent it all in one week. George stood up and looked at me. We... Oui. Shouldn't have spent it, you mean. Uh, that's right, I said. We, I began reading the paper. The coffee was ready now, and George brought the pot over and put it on the table between our beds. A person can't live without money, he said. The old man ought to know that. He got back into his bed without taking off his green dressing gown. I went on reading. I finished the racing page and the football page, and then I started on Lionel Pantaloon, the great political and society columnist. I always read Pantaloon, same as the other, 
20 or 30 million other people in the country. <laughs> he's a habit with me. Oh, he's more than a habit. He's part of my morning. Like three cups of coffee or shaving. Ah, this fellow's got a nerve, I said. Who? This Lionel Pantaloon. Oh, what's he saying now? Oh, the same sort of thing he's always saying. Same sort of scandal. Always about the rich. Listen to this. Seen at the Penguin Club, banker William S. Womberg with beauteous starlet Teresa Williams. Three nights running. Mrs. Womberg at home with a headache, which is something anyone's wife would have if hubby was out squiring Miss Williams of an evening. Oh, that fixes Womberg, George said. Well, I think it's a shame, I said. That sort of thing could cause a divorce. How can this pantaloon get away with stuff like that? Well, he always does. They're all scared of him. But if I was William S. Womberg, George said, you know what I'd do? I'd go right out and punch this Lionel Pantaloon right on the nose. That's the only way to handle those guys. Well, Mr. Womberg couldn't do that. Why not? Because he's an old man, I said. Mr. Womberg is a dignified and respectable old man. He's a very prominent banker in the town. He couldn't possibly... And then it happened. Suddenly, from nowhere, the idea came. It came to me in the middle of what I was saying to George. And I stopped short and... I could feel the idea itself kind of flowing into my brain. And I kept very quiet and let it come. And it kept on coming. And almost before I knew what had happened, I had it all. The whole plan. The whole brilliant magnificent plan worked out clearly in my head and right then I knew it was a beauty. I turned and I saw George staring at me with a look of wonder on his face. What's wrong? He said. What's the matter? I kept quite calm. I reached out got myself some more coffee before I allowed myself to speak. George, I said. I still kept calm. I have an idea. Now, listen very carefully because I have an idea which will make us both very rich. We are broke, are we not? Oh, we, we are. And this William S. Womberg, I said, would you consider that he is angry with Lionel Pantaloon this morning? Angry? George shouted. Angry? Why? He'll be madder than hell. Quite so. And do you think that he would like to see Lionel Pantaloon receive a good hard punch on the nose? You're damn right he would. And now, tell me, is it not possible that Mr. Womberg would be prepared to pay a sum of money to someone who would undertake to perform this nose-punching operation efficiently and discreetly on his behalf? George turned and looked at me, and gently, carefully, he put down his coffee cup on the table, a slowly widening smile began to spread across his face. I get you, he said. I get the idea. That's just a little part of the idea. If you read Pantaloon's column here, 
you would see that there is another person who has been insulted today. I picked up the paper. There is a Mrs. Ella Gimple, a prominent socialite, who has perhaps a million dollars in the bank. What does Pantaloon say about her? I looked at the paper again. He hints, I answered, at how she makes a stack of money out of her own friends by throwing roulette parties and acting as the bank. Oh, that fixes Gimple, George said. And Womberg. Gimple and Womberg. He was sitting up straight in bed, waiting for me to go on. Now, I said, we have two different people, both loathing Lionel Pantaloon's guts this morning, both wanting desperately to go out and punch him on the nose, and neither of them daring to do it. You understand that? Absolutely. So much, then, I said, for Lionel Pantaloon. But don't forget, there are others like him. There are dozens of other columnists who spend their time insulting wealthy and important people. There's Harry Wayman, Claude Taylor, Jacob Swinsky, Walter Kennedy, and the rest of them. That's right, George said. That's absolutely right. I'm telling you, there's nothing that makes the rich so furious as being mocked and insulted in the newspapers. Go on, George said. Go on. All right, now, this is the plan. I was getting rather excited myself. I was leaning over the side of the bed, resting one hand on the little table, waving the other about in the air as I spoke. We will set up immediately an organization, and we will call it... Oh, what shall we call it? Uh, We will call it... Let me see. We will call it Vengeance is Mine, Incorporated. How about that? Uh, Peculiar name. It's biblical. It's good. Oh, I like it. Vengeance is Mine, Incorporated. Oh, it sounds fine. And we will have little cards printed, which we will send to our clients, reminding them that they have been insulted and mortified in public, and reminding them that uh, they have been insulted and and offering to punish the offender, punish, in consideration of a sum of money. We will buy all the newspapers and read all the columnists, and every day we will send out uh, a dozen or more of our cards to prospective clients. Oh, it's marvelous, George shouted. Oh, it's terrific. We shall be rich. I told him, we shall be exceedingly wealthy in no time at all. We must start at once. I jumped out of bed, fetched a writing pad and a pencil, and ran back to bed again. Now, I said, pulling my knees under the blankets and propping the writing pad against them. The first thing is to decide what we're going to say on the printed cards, which we'll be sending to our clients. And I wrote, Vengeance is Mine, Incorporated, as a heading on the top of the paper. And then, with much care, I composed a finely phrased letter explaining the functions of the organization. It finished up with the following sentence. Therefore, Vengeance is Mine, Incorporated, will undertake on your behalf and in absolute confidence to administer suitable punishment to the columnist, and in this regard we respectfully submit to you a a choice of methods, together with prices, for your consideration. Wait, what do you mean a choice of methods? George said. Well, we must give them a choice. We must think up a number of things, a number of different punishments. Uh, Number one will be, and I wrote down number one, punch him on the nose once, hard. And what shall we charge for that? $500, George said instantly. I wrote it down. Well, what's the next one? Black his eye, George said. I wrote it down. 
Number two, black his eye, $500. No, George said. I disagree with the price. It definitely requires more skill and timing to black an eye nicely than to punch a nose. It is a skilled job. It should be 600 Okay, I said, 600 And what's the next one? Uh, both together, of course. The old one-two. We were in George's territory now. This was right up his street. Both together? Absolutely. Punch his nose and black his eye. $1,100. Oh, well, there should be a reduction for taking the two, I said. We'll make it a 1000 Well, that's, that's dirt cheap, George said. Well, they'll snap it up. What's next? Hmm. We were both silent now, concentrating fiercely. Three deep parallel grooves of skin appeared upon George's rather low, sloping forehead. He began to scratch his scalp slowly, but very strongly. I looked away and tried to think of all the terrible things which people had done to other people. Finally, I got one, and with George watching the point of my pencil moving over the paper, I wrote, number four, put a rattlesnake with venom extracted on the floor of his car by the pedals when he parks it. Jesus Christ, George whispered. You want to kill him with fright? Sure, I said. And where'd you get the rattlesnake, anyway? Buy it. You can always buy them. Now, how much shall we charge for that one? Uh, $1,500, George said firmly. I wrote it down. Now, <clears throat> we need one more. Well, here it is, George said. Kidnap him in a car. Take all his clothes away, uh, except his underpants and, and his shoes and socks, and, and then dump him out on Fifth Avenue in the rush hour. He smiled a broad, triumphant smile. Oh, we can't do that. Write it down. And charged 2500 bucks. You'd do it all right if old Womberg were to offer you that much. Yes, I said, I suppose I would, and I wrote it down. Well, that's enough now, I added. That gives them a wide choice. And where will we get the cards printed, George asked. George Karnofsky, I said. Another George. He's a friend of mine, runs a small printing shop down on 3rd Avenue, does wedding invitations and things like that for all the big stores. Oh, he'll... He'll do it. I know he will. Then what are we waiting for? We both leapt out of bed and began to dress. Well, it's 12 o'clock, I said. If we hurry, we'll catch him before he goes to lunch. It was still snowing when we went out into the street, and the snow was four or five inches thick on the sidewalk. But we covered the 14 blocks to Karnofsky's shop at a tremendous pace, and we arrived there just as he was putting his coat on to go out. Claude, he shouted. Hi, boy, how you been keeping? And he pumped my hand. He had a fat, friendly face and a terrible nose with great, wide-open nose wings which overlapped his cheeks by at least an inch on either side. I greeted him and told him that we had come to discuss some most urgent business. He took off his coat and led us back into the office. And then I began to tell him our plans and what we wanted him to do. When I got about a quarter way through my story, he started to roar with laughter and it was impossible for me to continue so I cut it short and handed him the piece of paper with the stuff on it that we wanted him to print 
And now, as he read it, his whole body began to shake with laughter, and he kept slapping the desk with his hand, and coughing, and choking, and roaring like someone crazy. We sat watching him. We didn't see anything particular to laugh about. Finally, he quietened down, and he took out a handkerchief and made a great business about wiping his eyes. I never laughed so much, he said weakly. It's a great joke, Thaddeus. It is worth a lunch. Come on out. I'll give you lunch. Now look, I said severely. This isn't any joke. There is nothing to laugh at. You are witnessing the birth of a new and powerful organization. Oh, come on, he said, and began to laugh again. Come on and have lunch. When can you get those cards printed? I said. My voice was stern and businesslike. He paused and stared at us. You mean, you really mean you're serious about this thing? Absolutely. You are witnessing the birth. All right, all right, he said. He stood up. I think you're crazy, and you know you'll get in trouble. Those boys like messing other people about, but they don't much fancy being messed about themselves. When can you get them printed, and without any of your workers reading them? For this, he answered gravely, I will give up my lunch. I will set the type myself. It's the least I can do. And he laughed again, and the rims of his huge nostrils twitched with pleasure. How many do you want? A thousand, to start with, and envelopes. Will you come back at two o'clock, he said. And I thanked him very much. And as we went out, we could hear his laughter rumbling down the passage into the back of the shop. Now at exactly two o'clock, we were back. George Karnofsky was in his office, and the first thing I saw as we went in was the high stack of printed cards on his desk in front of him. Oh, they were large cards about twice the size of ordinary wedding or cocktail invitation cards. There you are, he said, all ready for you. And the fool was still laughing. He handed us each a card, and I examined mine carefully. Oh, it was a beautiful thing. Stay with us. We'll be right back. He handed us each a card, and I examined mine carefully. Oh, it was a beautiful thing. He had obviously taken much trouble over it. The card itself was thick and stiff, with narrow gold edging all the way around. And the letters of the heading were exceedingly elegant. I cannot reproduce it here in all its splendor, but I can at least tell you how it read. Vengeance is mine, incorporated. Dear blank, 
You have probably seen the columnist's slanderous and unprovoked attack upon your character in today's paper. It is an outrageous insinuation, a deliberate distortion of the truth. Are you yourself prepared to allow this miserable malice monger to insult you in this manner? The whole world knows that it is foreign to the nature of the American people to permit themselves to be insulted, either in public or in private, without rising up in righteous indignation and demanding, nay, exacting, a just measure of retribution. On the other hand, it is only natural that a citizen of your standing and reputation will not wish personally to become further involved in this sordid, petty affair, or indeed to have any direct contact whatsoever with this vile person. How, then, are you to obtain satisfaction? The answer is simple. Vengeance is mine incorporated. We'll obtain it for you. We will undertake on your behalf and in absolute confidence to administer individual punishment to the columnist. And in this regard, we respectfully submit to you a choice of methods, together with prices, for your consideration. Number one, punch him on the nose once hard, $500. Number two, black his eye, $600. Three, punch him on the nose and black his eye, $1,000. Number four, introduce a rattlesnake with venom extracted into his car, on the floor, by his pedals, when he parks it. Fifteen hundred dollars. Number five. Kidnap him. Take all his clothes away, except his underpants, his shoes, and socks. Then dump him out on Fifth Avenue in the rush hour. Two thousand five hundred dollars. This work executed by a professional. If you desire to avail yourself of any of these offers, kindly reply to Vengeance is Mine Incorporated at the address indicated upon the enclosed slip of paper. If it is practicable, you will be notified in advance of the place where the action will occur and of the time so that you may, if you wish, watch the proceedings in person from a safe and anonymous distance. No payment need be made until after your order has been satisfactorily executed, when an account will be rendered in the usual manner. George Karnofsky had done a beautiful job of printing. Claude, he said, you like? It's marvelous. Well, it is the best I could do for you. It's like in the war. In the war when I would see soldiers going off, perhaps to get killed. And all the time I would want to be giving them things and doing things for them. He was beginning to laugh again. So I said, oh, well, we'd, we'd better be going now. Have you got large envelopes for these cards? Everything is here, and you can pay me when the money starts coming in. Now that seemed to set him off worse than ever, and he collapsed into his chair, giggling like a fool. George and I hurried out of the shop, into the street, and into the cold, 
snow-falling afternoon. We almost ran the distance back to our room, and on the way up I borrowed a Manhattan telephone directory from the public telephone in the hall. We found Womberg, William S., without any trouble, and while I read out the address, somewhere up in the East 90s, George wrote it on one of the envelopes. Gimple, Mrs. Ella H., was also in the book, and we addressed an envelope to her as well. We'll just send to Womberg and Gimple today, I said. We haven't really got started yet. Tomorrow, we'll send a dozen. Well, we'd better catch the next post, George said. <laughs> we'll deliver them by hand, I said. Now, at once. The sooner they get them, the better. Tomorrow might be too late. They won't be half so angry tomorrow as they are today. People are apt to cool off through the night, I said. Now, here we go. You go ahead and deliver those two cards right away. While you're doing that, I'm going to snoop around the town and try to find out something about the habits of Lionel Pantaloon. I'll see you back here later in the evening. At about nine o'clock that evening, I returned and found George lying on his bed, smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee. I delivered them both, he said. I just slipped them through the letter boxes and rang the bells, and then I beat it up the street. Womberg had a huge house, a huge white house. Now, how did you get on? I went to see a man I know who works in the sports section of the Daily Mirror. He told me all. What did he tell you? He said, Pantaloon's movements are more or less routine. He operates at night, but wherever he goes, earlier in the evening, he always, and this is the important point, he always finishes up at the Penguin Club. Yeah. Now, he gets there round about midnight, and he stays until 2 or 2.30. That's when his leg men bring him all the dope. <laughs> That's all we want to know, George said happily. It's too easy. Money for old rope. A British expression meaning a reward earned for no effort. There was a full bottle of blended whiskey in the cupboard, and George fetched it out. For the next two hours, we sat upon our beds, drinking the whiskey and making wonderful and complicated plans for the development of our organization. By 11 o'clock, we were employing a staff of 50 including 12 famous pugilists. And our offices were in Rockefeller Center. Toward midnight, we had obtained control over all columnists, and we were dictating their daily columns to them by telephone from our headquarters taking care to insult and infuriate at least 20 rich persons in one part of the country or another every day. Oh, we were immensely wealthy. And George, George had a British Bentley and I had five Cadillacs. George kept practicing telephone talks with Lionel Pantaloon. Thank you. Pantaloon, is that you? Uh, yes, sir. Well, listen here. I think your column stinks today. It's lousy. Oh, I'm very sorry, sir. I'll try to do better tomorrow. Damn right you'll do better, Pantaloon. Matter of fact, we've been thinking about getting someone else to take over. Oh, but please, please, sir, just give me another chance. Uh, okay, Pantaloon, but this is the last. And by the way... 
the boys are putting a rattlesnake in your car tonight on behalf of uh, Mr. Hiram C. King, the soap manufacturer. Now, Mr. King will be watching from across the street, so don't forget to act scared when you see it. Oh, yes, sir, of course, sir. I, I won't forget, sir. When we finally went to bed and the light was out, I could still hear George giving hell to Pantaloon on the telephone. Next morning, we were both woken up by the church clock on the corner, striking nine. George got up and went to the door to get the papers. And when he came back, he was holding a letter in his hand. Open it, I said. He opened it and carefully unfolded a single sheet of thin note paper. Read it. I shouted. He began to read it aloud, his voice low and serious at first, but rising gradually to a high, almost hysterical shout of triumph as the full meaning of the letter was revealed to him. It said, Your methods appear curiously unorthodox, but at the same time, Anything you do to that scoundrel has my approval. So, go ahead. Start with item one, and if you are successful, I would be only too glad to give you an order to work right on through the list. Send the bill to me, William S. Womberg. I recollect that in the excitement of the moment, we did a kind of dance around the room in our pajamas, praising Mr. Womberg in loud voices and shouting that we were rich. George turned somersaults on his bed, and it is possible that I did the same. When shall we do it? He said. Tonight? I paused before replying. I refused to be rushed. The pages of history are filled with the names of great men who have come to grief by permitting themselves to make hasty decisions in the excitement of a moment. I put on my dressing gown, lit a cigarette, and began to pace up and down the room. Now there is no hurry, I said. Womberg's order can be dealt with in due course. But first of all, we must send out today's cards. I dressed quickly. We went out to the newsstand across the street, bought one copy of every daily paper there was, and returned to our room. The next two hours was spent in reading the columnists' columns. And in the end, we had a list of 11 people, eight men, three women, all of whom had been insulted in one way or another by one of the columnists that morning. Oh, things were going well. We were working smoothly. It took us only another half hour to look up the addresses of the insulted ones two we couldn't find, and to address the envelopes. In the afternoon, we delivered them. And at about six in the evening, we got back to our room, tired but triumphant. We made coffee and we fried hamburgers and we had supper in bed. And then we reread Womberg's letter aloud to each other. <laughs> Many, many times. What he's doing, he's giving us an order 
for six thousand one hundred dollars, George said. Items one to five inclusive. Uh, it's not a bad beginning. Not bad for the first day. Six thousand a day. Now, that works out at, let me see, uh, oh, it's nearly two million dollars a year, not counting Sundays. A million each. Oh, it's more than Betty Grable. We are very wealthy people, George said. He smiled a slow and wondrous smile of pure contentment. Now, in a day or two, we will move to a suite of rooms at the St. Regis. Uh, I think the Waldorf, George said. All right, the Waldorf. And later on, well, we might as well take a house. Oh, one like Womberg's. All right, one like Womberg's. But first, I said, we have work to do. Tomorrow, we shall deal with Pantaloon. We will catch him as he comes out of the Penguin Club. At 2.30 a.m., we will be waiting for him. And when he comes out into the street, you will step forward and punch him once hard, right upon the point of the nose. As per contract, it will be a pleasure, George said. It will be a real pleasure. But how do we uh, get away? Do we run? Hmm. We shall hire a car for an hour. We have just enough money left for that. And I shall be sitting at the wheel with the engine running not 10 yards away. And the door will be open. And when you've punched him, you just jump back into the car and we'll be gone. Oh, it's perfect. I, I shall punch him very hard. George paused. He clenched his right fist and examined his knuckles. And then he smiled again and he said slowly, this nose of his, is it not possible that it will afterwards be so much blunted that it will no longer poke well into other people's business? It is quite possible, I answered, and with that happy thought in our minds, we switched out the lights and went early to sleep. The next morning, I was woken by a shout, and I sat up and saw George standing at the foot of my bed in his pajamas, waving his arms. Look, he shouted, there are four, there are four. I looked, and indeed there were four letters in his hand. Oh, open them. Quickly, open them. The first one he read aloud. Dear Vengeance is Mine Incorporated. That's the best proposition I've had in years. Go right ahead and give Mr. Jacob Swinsky the rattlesnake treatment. Item four. Oh, but I'll be glad to pay double if you'll forget to extract the poison from its fangs. Yours, Gertrude Porter Vandervelt. But, uh, P.S., you'd better insure the snake. That guy's bite carries more poison than the rattlers. George read the second one aloud. My check for $500 is made out and lies before me on my desk. The moment I receive proof that you have punched Lionel Pantaloon hard on the nose, it will be posted to you. I should prefer a fracture, if possible. Yours, etc., Wilbur H. Golligly. George read the third one aloud. In my present frame of mind and against my better judgment, I am tempted to reply to your card and to request that you deposit that scoundrel Walter Kennedy upon Fifth Avenue, dressed only in his underwear. <laughs> I make the proviso that there shall be snow on the ground at the time and that the temperature shall be sub-zero. H. Gresham. The fourth one he also read aloud. A good hard sock on the nose for Pantaloon is worth 500 of mine or anybody else's money. I should like to watch. <laughs> Yours sincerely, Claudia Calthorpe Hines. George laid the letters down, gently, carefully. 
upon the bed. For a while, there was silence. We stared at each other, too astonished, too happy to speak. I began to calculate the value of those four orders in terms of money. That's five thousand dollars worth, I said softly. Upon George's face, there was a huge bright grin. Claude, he said. Should we not move now to the Waldorf? Soon, I answered. But at the moment, we have no time for moving. We have not even time to send out fresh cards today. We must start to execute the orders we have in hand. We are overwhelmed with work. Well, should we not engage extra staff and enlarge our organization? Later, I said, even for that, there's no time today. Just think. Think what we have to do. We have to put a rattlesnake in Jacob Swinsky's car. We have to dump Walter Kennedy on Fifth Avenue in his underpants. We have to punch Pantaloon on the nose. Oh, let me see. Yes. For three different people, we have to punch Pantaloon. I stopped. I closed my eyes. I sat still. Again, I became conscious of a small, clear stream of inspiration flowing into the tissues of my brain. I have it! I shouted. I have it! Oh, I have it! Three birds with one stone. Three customers with one punch. How? Don't you see? We only need to punch Pantaloon once, and each of the three customers, Womberg, Golligly, and Claudia Hines, will think it's being done specially for him or her. Oh, say it again. I said it again. It's brilliant. It's common sense. And the same principle will apply to the others. The rattlesnake treatment. And the others can wait until we have more orders. Perhaps in a few days we will have ten orders for rattlesnakes in Swinsky's car. And then we will do them all in one go. It's wonderful. This evening, then, I said, we will handle Pantaloon. But first, ooh, we must hire a car. Also, we must send telegrams, one to Womberg, one to Golligly, and one to Claudia Hines, telling them where and when the punching will take place. We dressed rapidly and went out. In a dirty, silent little garage down on East Ninth Street, we managed to hire a car, a 1934 Chevrolet, $8 for the evening. We then sent three telegrams, each one identical and cunningly worded to conceal its true meaning from inquisitive people. Hope to see you outside Penguin Club, 2.30 a.m. Regards, the I mine. There is one thing more, I said. It is essential that you should be disguised. Pantaloon or the doorman, for example, must not be able to identify you afterwards. You must wear a false mustache. Well, what about you? It's not necessary. I'll be sitting in the car. They won't see me. We went to a children's toy shop, and we bought for George a magnificent black mustache, a thing with long pointed ends, waxed and stiff and shining, and when he held it up against his face, he looked exactly like the Kaiser of Germany. The man in the shop also sold us a tube of glue, and he showed us how the mustache should be attached to the upper lip. Going to have fun with the kids? He asked, and George said, uh, absolutely. All was now ready, but there was a long time to wait. 
We had three dollars left between us, and with this we bought a sandwich each and went to a movie. Then, at eleven o'clock that evening, we collected our car, and in it we began to cruise slowly through the streets of New York, waiting for the time to pass. You'd better put on your mustache so you get used to it. We pulled up under a street lamp, and I squeezed some glue on George's upper lip and fixed on the huge, black, hairy thing with its pointed ends. And then we drove on. Whew, it was cold in the car, and outside it was beginning to snow again. I could see a few small snowflakes falling through the beams of the car lights. George kept saying, Now how hard shall I hit him? And I kept answering, You hit him as hard as you can. And on the nose, it must be on the nose, because that is a part of the contract. Everything must be done right. Our clients may be watching. At two in the morning, we drove slowly past the entrance to the Penguin Club in order to survey the situation. I will park there, I said, just past the entrance in that patch of dark. But I will leave the door open for you. We drove on. Then George said, uh, What does he look like? How do I know it's him? Don't you worry, I answered. I thought of that, and I took from my pocket a piece of paper and handed it to him. You take this, and you fold it up small and give it to the doorman and tell him to see it gets to Pantaloon quickly. Act as though you are scared to death and in an awful hurry. It's a hundred to one that Pantaloon will come out. No columnist could resist that message. On the paper I had written, I am a social worker in Soviet Consulate. Come to the door very quickly, please. I have something to tell, but come quickly as I am in danger. I cannot come in to you. You see, I said, your mustache will make you look like a Russian. All Russians have big mustaches. George took the paper and folded it up, very small, and held it in his fingers. It was nearly half past two in the morning now, and we began to drive towards the Penguin Club. You all set? I said. Yes. We're going in now. Here we come. I'll park just past the entrance. Here. Hit him hard. I said, and George opened the door and got out of the car. I closed the door behind him, but I leaned over and kept my hand on the handle so I could open it again, quick, and I let down the window so I could watch. I kept the engine ticking over. I saw George walk swiftly up to the doorman, who stood under the red and white canopy which stretched out over the sidewalk. I saw the doorman turn and look down at George. And I didn't like the way he did it. He was a tall, proud man, dressed in a magenta-colored uniform with gold buttons and gold shoulders and a broad white stripe down each magenta trouser leg. Also, he wore white gloves, and he stood there looking proudly down at George, frowning, pressing his lips together hard. He was looking at George's mustache. Oh, and I thought, oh my God, we have overdone it. We have over-disguised him. He's going to know it's false, and he's going to take one of the long pointed ends in his fingers, and he'll give it a tweak, and it'll come off. But he didn't. He was 
distracted by George's acting, for George was acting well. I could see him hopping about, clasping and unclasping his hands, swaying his body and shaking his head, and I could hear him saying, Please, 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 you must hurry. It is life and death. Please, please take it quick to Mr. Pantaloon. His Russian accent was not like any accent I had ever heard before, but all the same, there was a quality of real despair in his voice. Finally, gravely, proudly, the doorman said, Give me the note. George gave it to him and said, Oh, thank you, thank you, but say it is urgent. And the doorman disappeared inside. In a few moments, he returned and said, It's being delivered now. George paced nervously up and down. I waited, watching the door. Three or four minutes elapsed. George wrung his hands and said, Where is he? Where is he? Please to go and see if he is not coming. What's the matter with you? The doorman said. Now, He was looking at George's mustache again. It is life and death. Mr. Pantaloon can help. He must come. Why don't you shut up? The doorman said. But he opened the door again and he poked his head inside. And I heard him saying something to someone. To George, he said. They say he's coming now. A moment later, the door opened. And... Pantaloon himself, small and dapper, stepped out. He paused by the door, looking quickly from side to side, like an inquisitive ferret. The doorman touched his cap and pointed at George. I heard Pantaloon say, Yes, what do you want? And George said, Please, this way a little so no one can hear. And he led Pantaloon along the pavement, away from the doorman, and towards the car. Come on now, Pantaloon said. What is it you want? Suddenly, George shouted, Look! And he pointed up the street. Pantaloon turned his head, and as he did so, George swung his right arm and he hit Pantaloon plumb on the point of the nose. I saw George leaning forward on that punch, all his weight behind it, and the whole of Pantaloon appeared somehow to lift slightly off the ground and to float backwards for two or three feet until the facade of the Penguin Club stopped him. All this happened very quickly. And then George was in the car beside me, and we were off. And I could hear the doorman blowing a whistle behind us. Oh, you've done it, George gasped. He was excited and out of breath. I hit him good. Did you see how good I hit him? It was snowing hard now, and I drove fast and made many sudden turnings. And I knew no one would catch us in this snowstorm. Son of a gun, he almost went right through that wall. I hit him so hard. Well done, George, I said. Nice work, George. And did you see him lift? Did you see him lift right up off the ground? Womberg will be pleased, I said. And Golagly and the Heinz woman, they'll all be pleased, I said. Just watch the money coming in. Oh, there's a car right behind us. George shouted. Oh, it's following us. It's right on our tail. You better drive like mad. It's impossible, I said. They couldn't have picked us up already. It's just another car going somewhere. I turned sharply to the right. Oh, no, still with us, George said. Keep turning. We'll lose him soon. Now, how the hell can we lose a police car in a 1934 Chevy, I said. I'm just going to stop. Keep going, George shouted. You're doing fine. I'm going to stop, I said. 
It'll only make them mad if we go on. George protested fiercely, but I knew it was no good, and I pulled in to the side of the road. The other car swerved out and went past us and skidded to a standstill in front of us. Quick, George said. Let's beat it. He had the door open and he was ready to run. Don't be a fool, I said. You stay right where you are. You can't get away now. A voice from outside said, All right, boys, what's the hurry? Uh, no hurry, I answered. We're, we're just going home. Yeah? Oh, yes, we're just on our way home now. The man poked his head in through the window on my side, and he looked at me, and then at George, and then at me again. It's a nasty night. George said. We're, we're just trying to reach home before the streets get all snowed up. Well, the man said, you can take it easy. I just thought I'd like to give you this right away. He dropped a wad of banknotes onto my lap. I'm Golligly, he added. Wilbur H. Golligly. And he stood out there in the snow, grinning at us, stamping his feet and rubbing his hands to keep them warm. I got your wire, and I watched the whole thing from right across the street. Oh, you did a fine job. I am paying you boys double. It was worth it. Funniest thing I ever seen. Well, goodbye, boys. You better watch your steps. They'll be after you now. Get out of town if I were you. Goodbye. And before we could say anything, he was gone. When finally we got back to our room, I started packing at once. Are you crazy, George said. We've only got to wait a few hours. And then we receive $500 each from Womberg and the Heinz woman. Then We'll have 2,000 all together, and we can go anywhere we want. So, we spent the next day waiting in our room and reading the papers, one of which had a whole column on the front page headed, Brutal Assault on Famous Columnist. But sure enough, the late afternoon post brought us two letters, and there was $500 in each. And right now, at this moment, we are sitting in a Pullman car, drinking scotch whiskey and heading south for a place where there is always sunshine and where the horses are running every day. Oh yes, we are immensely wealthy and George keeps saying that if we put the whole of our two thousand dollars on a horse at ten to one, we shall make another twenty thousand, and we will be able to retire. We will have a house at Palm Beach. That's what George says. And we will entertain upon a lavish scale. Beautiful social lights will loll around the edge of our swimming pool, sipping cool drinks. Hmm. And after a while, we will perhaps put another large sum of money upon another horse, and we shall become wealthier still. Possibly, we will become tired of Palm Beach, and then we will move around in a leisurely manner among the playgrounds of the rich. Monte Carlo and places like that. Just like the Duke of Windsor, we will become prominent members of the 
international set, and film stars will smile at us, and head waiters will bow to us. And, perhaps, in time to come, perhaps, we might even get ourselves mentioned in Lionel Pantaloon's column. That would be something, George said. Wouldn't it just? I answered happily. Wouldn't that just be something? Music for this episode begins with Chocolat, main title, by Rachel Portman. Then, Smile, piano version, by Benick. Then, The Path, by Cynthia Garcia. And, Nocturne in A minor, by Chad Lawson. Remember, you can reach me at Fast Asleep with Gina Marie 44 at gmail.com or you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. And please, keep us here for you by commenting, liking, and subscribing. Thank you for listening. Keyword, wealthy. Good night.